thank you for your prayers and for your encouragement, your support. Uh, as I helped my parents prepare for my grandmother's funeral this past week, my uh, I was able to pick my dad up from the airport and get back in from Vietnam uh, on Monday and uh, help him plan the funeral arrangements as he dealt with jet lag. And uh, we uh, had an opportunity, or I had an opportunity to speak at the funeral. And it was so funny. My, I, I've told you this story over and over again, but my youth pastor that came to First Baptist Huntsville when I was in seventh grade, uh, he stayed as the youth pastor all from 7th through 12th grade when I was there and then for several more years and then just transitioned to what he called the experienced adult, pa uh, adult pastor. And he was my parents' pastor and my grandmother's pastor. Uh, and he said, he said, doing youth ministry and senior adult ministry is actually not that different. He said they both listen to their music rock loud for different reasons. Uh, and, uh, and so anyway, but... Um, I, I, and I, know I scanned tons of pictures. I did one of those little videos. This is actually a picture of me uh, with my grandmother celebrating their 40th wedding anniversary. And as you can tell, I was a little hellion. Um, <laughs> had to be involved in everything. Uh, but this is Grandma Kitty as, as we uh, remember her. 97 years old. Uh, she would have been 98 December 13th. And um, anyway, I, I, I had a quote that I, I read about grandmothers that I think... Definitely applies to some of you in here. Uh, definitely applied to her. My grandmother's warm hugs and sweet memories. She remembers all of your accomplishments and forgets all of your mistakes. And I was especially thankful for that last part, uh, especially the time that I stayed out. So I live in Huntsville on the side of Montesano Mountain, and you can't exactly ride your bike as a little kid on Governor's Drive, which is uh, right. That's also Highway 431. Um, and so I would always go down to my grandmother's house, and that's where I kept my bike. Well, I got very adventurous one day, and I stayed out past uh, dark. And so my grandmother comes looking for me, and she finds me. And, of course, she's so gentle, and she's so loving and grandmotherly. And so she's like, hey, you really need to be in before dark. You had me really worried. We get back to the house, and she's locked her keys inside the house. Uh, and so we had to break a window and uh, to get back in the house. And that's one of the stories that every time my family got together, that story was told uh, about the time that we had to break a window to get back in the house. How? So I'll break it, Grandma Kitty. I'll break it. I'll break it. No, you're not going to break it. We called the neighbor who came and did it in a much safer way than I would have done it. But, uh, but I kid you not, I, at visitation on Thursday night, I had people who currently go to First Baptist Huntsville who love my grandmother, love my parents, and they came up to me and they said, now where are you? And I said, well, I'm in Abbeville and I'm a pastor at First Baptist Abbeville. I kid you not, I had people who cracked up laughing. <laughs> they were like, God never ceases to amaze me. I mean, that, was the, that was the response that I got. Really? You're a pastor now? Okay. Well, they obviously don't have Facebook or anything. Um, but, uh, but I think, I think that testifies that I'm, I'm not who I once was. And I, I'm thankful that, uh, Grandma Kitty, uh, and Jesus, uh, have forgotten my mistakes and, uh, and I've grown through them. But, uh, I'm thankful, I'm thankful also that people can get the joy out of the miracle that I am today. And so today we want to turn our attention to the, the, the New Testament letter of James. Uh, there were, there were two New Testament authors who are, the brothers of Jesus. One of them is James, and the other one is who knows, Jude. Yeah, if you saw the other uh, the other sheet in your in your bulletin, you know the other uh, brother of Jesus who wrote a New Testament letter was Jude. And today we're going to spend time studying through these two books, uh, James this morning and Jude tonight. 
And uh, we're going to understand why they wrote. Now, you need to understand, uh, especially as we, uh, as we talk about getting together with families, you need to understand that Jesus was considered the crazy person of his family. And if you, if you don't believe me, uh, go look at Matthew chapter 12. Jesus' mother, Mary, and his brothers all came to the house where Jesus was preaching, and they tried, they were like, hey, come home with us, because you're embarrassing the family. You know, that was kind of the, the mentality. They, they, they thought Jesus was crazy. They didn't believe in him while he was on this earth. But we know that after Jesus rose from the dead, that he appeared to his family, to his two brothers particularly, and James and Jude and maybe others that we don't have their names, they, they were all gloriously saved, believing in this Jesus who was their, their, their brother, half-brother technically. And they became leaders in that early church in Jerusalem. And so that's why we have these two letters, James and Jude. And so after they became leaders in the early church, we saw last week in Acts chapter 15, the early church came to a point of crisis. There were false teachers all throughout the church and and they were at war on the outside because of Roman persecution, on the inside because of false teachers. And so these, lead, these, these church leaders had to start writing letters. And last, last week we looked at Galatians where Paul started writing a letter uh, to the churches in Galatia warning them not to abandon the gospel and explained to them what that was. He also taught them that, that we don't live by a, a long list of do's and don'ts. That's not what Christianity is about. Instead, we commune with the Spirit of God as the Word of God abides in us, as John chapter 15 says. And as we commune with the Spirit of God, then we are led along the path of life and truth. And Paul asserted that and, and argued for that last week. And the reason that this was, so, this was so critical is because Acts chapter 8 records that after Stephen was martyred, that the entire church that was in Jerusalem scattered. That all of those who got saved in the early chapters of the book of Acts, that because that persecution came, they scattered and they left. And so Galatians and James are two of the earliest books written in the New Testament. But you need to know that for the longest time, that the book of James was really, that, that some, especially uh, reformers in the 16th century, that they didn't like James. Martin Luther uh, infamously said that he would, he would take it out of the New Testament. He just didn't like it. He, he also said that it was a right strawy epistle, meaning that it didn't really have anything doctrinally of substance in it. He didn't like that. That's because that's he was saved through the reading of Galatians and Romans. And we talked about last week. These are really heavy books that, that, that draw heavily upon Old Testament illustration. And Paul does that to defend the gospel. But James is no different. James is trying to defend how the gospel transforms our lives. Paul is trying to defend the gospel that transforms. And James is trying to say, if you really have a genuine faith, then this is what your life is going to look like. And yes, you'll have struggles, but through truth, you can mortify those, those sins and you can have victory in those struggles. And so ultimately, both Paul and James are concerned with what it looks like to live a life that's transformed by Christ. Paul roots it in the spirit bearing fruit in us, and James roots it in an implanted wisdom that gives us the new birth. But according to John chapter 3, according to John chapter 3, Jesus would explain that these are one and the same. So just to say it again. Paul and James, they're concerned with the same thing. They're both concerned with what it looks like to live a transformed life by Christ, who is the wisdom of God. Paul just talks about the Spirit. James just talks about wisdom. And so 
Uh, don't ever, don't ever buy into the, the the lie that James and Paul are somehow in conflict with one another because they're not. Many people struggle with that. And so, as we've done with other other passages, it's or in other books, it's really important that we understand why James wrote his book a little bit more specifically than what we just said. Because, and this this is really important. I, maybe you've been in this situation before that you've been sitting in a small group Bible study. And as you sit and you are, maybe you read a passage of scripture and somebody might ask the question just as a way of prompting discussion, which I, I teach the college Sunday school and, uh, and they're not the most talkative bunch. Uh, I love them dearly, but, uh, but sometimes our discussions are very limited. And so uh, I understand that sometimes we just pull a question out of the blue just to try to get discussion started. But here's a Here's a wrong question to start Bible study with. What does this passage mean to you? We live in a day and age, and this, I'm sorry, this is not on the notes, but this just has to be said. We live in a day and age where people are talking about, well, they're just speaking their truth. There's no such thing as your truth and my truth. There's no such thing as their truth. Kids, hear me, especially you younger folks. Um, there is no such thing as a truth that applies to me that you get to define on your own. It, it just it doesn't exist. And I love uh, Tanner. Tanner and the youth ministry right now are studying a series on apologetics. And I, I went into the to the classroom the other day or to the youth room, and I saw written on the board this objective versus subjective truth. And I'm like, oh my goodness! I wish somebody had taught me that when I was younger. Because for years I lived with my truth. Asserting my truth. It's not about my truth. It's not about your truth. There's no such thing as what a passage would mean to you apart from what it means. And the reason that we start the way that we've started with Paul's focus and James's focus and Matthew, Mark, Luke and John's focus. The, the reason that they wrote is important. If you don't understand the context of a passage then you will do all kinds of what we call biblical gymnastics, making it say whatever you want. And that's just, that's a very, very, very dangerous habit to get into when we open God's Word. So the most important question that you can ask is not, what does it mean to you? The most important question that you can ask is, what does it mean? Why was it written? Why did James write? Why did, why did Paul write? And that's why we started the way that we've had as we've studied through these New Testament books. And so James's focus is a little bit different from Paul. Paul wrote a letter that was to a specific church that was meant to be read and understood that it was one cohesive unit. But James, on the other hand, James actually writes a book that is a collection of little mini sermons. And interestingly, and this is one of those things that I've tried to dig deep into the archive of the internet, uh, which is never a good idea, uh, this week to understand this. I have no idea why it's called the book of James. Because in the Greek, you know what the name is? It's Jacob. And yes, I, I've started using emojis on my sermon slide. Uh, reaching the younger generation. Um, and so, if you look at the Greek, it actually says Jacobos, which is Jacob. And for some reason, the influence of French on the English language as it was being translated in English, they, they translated it, James, and I don't know, maybe King James funding that original 
uh, complete 1611 translation of the, of the, of the entire Bible. Might have had something to do with it, but, but still, his, his actual name is Jacob, which is important because it helps us remember that James, or Jacob, was a Jew. He was, he was a Messianic Jew. He was somebody who had seen the Messiah. And he was somebody from, who was writing with a thoroughly biblical worldview in terms of the Old Testament. That's important. We'll talk about that in a second. But remember how uh, the fact that when we studied through the book of Proverbs earlier this year, that we talked about the Jews looked at the wisdom of God as something that connected and united and wove together the entire universe. That we see, I mean, for instance, we see these laws that govern us, don't we? If you try to, to state your truth that you can fly off a building, then the truth of gravity will come and, and hit you as you hit the concrete on the way down at, at the bottom, right? The, 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 there's no such thing as, as my truth and your truth when it comes to gravity, right? And so there are these laws that govern the universe. Well, those same laws that are applicable to the physical universe, that, that manifest themselves in the, applicable, I mean, the physical universe, there are also moral and spiritual laws that govern our, our universe as well. And we talked about how the wisdom of the book of Proverbs connects us with that. It, it speaks to us from that, from that frame of reference. And we've said this, this over and over and over again. The book of Proverbs and the wisdom of God in the book of Proverbs basically says that God has designed life to be lived in a certain way. And if you choose to go against that design, namely you choose to sin, then you choose to suffer. Remember us saying that? You choose to sin, you choose to suffer. God has woven suffering into every sin so that you know that there's no life there. And over and over and over again in the wisdom of the book of Proverbs, we get this. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. If you choose to walk against the wisdom of God, then you're... You're known as a fool. You're, you're somebody who, who, doesn't, who doesn't understand this fact that God's created the world in wisdom. And the, and the price that you will pay is the destruction of yourself and maybe even the people who are around you. You see, wisdom, wisdom is this universal, universally available truth that guides our lives. And so James is writing from that same perspective when he writes his letter. It's a bunch of many sermons about God's wisdom and how crucial it is to life. Very similar to Proverbs 1 through 8. And James, but James takes that thoroughly biblical worldview. And look at your sheet there. If you've got your, uh, your sheet for James, uh, the, the little insert that was in there. What James did is he took that biblical perspective of wisdom... From the book of Proverbs, and he took the teachings of his brother Jesus, and that's how he wrote the, 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 the letter that we know as James. And so, for instance, under each one of these little boxes on the back of this little graphic, uh, these graphics are, I'm a visual learner, so these graphics help me understand a lot about these books. And so, under each little graphic, what do you see? You see, see Matthew 5, 46 through 48. Or see Matthew 7, 21 through 27. Or see Luke 6, 43 through 45. And under each one, you can go through and you see that there is almost like an anchor point in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain found in the book of Luke for each thing that, that James says. So James was not only meditating upon the wisdom of God by which he designed the universe, but he was meditating upon the wisdom of Jesus that Jesus had communicated in his earthly ministry. And that's, that's why he wrote and how he wrote 
And so if you need a, a larger version of that, you can look on the walls as you go out uh, this hallway. Uh, you can see a larger version. There's a little QR code at the bottom of the, uh, uh, of the, of the graphic on, that are on the walls out here, which you can scan with the, the, phone, the camera on your smartphone, and it'll take you to the YouTube video, and you can watch that graphic being drawn out and explained. So it's just something a little extra and fun that you can do, especially if you've got kids. It's a really good way to learn uh, the flow of these books. And so James is seeking to impart wisdom to these people that will help them endure this persecution and will refocus them on the words of wisdom that are meant to guide and transform their lives. And as with most other books of the Bible, the first things that are communicated set the tone for the rest of the book. So look at James chapter 1, verse 2. A verse that many of you have probably memorized. A verse that many of you might, you might say this to yourself uh, once a week or so. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I've told you uh, things to underline in your Bible. If you, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, underline the word perfect. Underline the word perfect. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That word perfect is the key word for the book of James. Used seven times, which we, we might not think, well, seven's not a lot. But when there's only five chapters, it is. James re was repeating this word because we learn by repetition. This idea of perfect communicates the wholeness of life that God's wisdom brings to us. The wholeness of life that God's wisdom and word bring to us. And I, I, that's actually the note that we're going to end on here shortly. And so James chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 and 4 set the tone for the rest of the book. Remember, these are people who had encountered great persecution and it had caused them to scatter. And so James is looking at them and he's saying, listen guys, I know it's been tough, but your suffering is not purposeless. Your suffering is not accidental. Your suffering is designed. Nothing is wasted in God's economy. God is at work in and through the horrible circumstances. Not that God wants these circumstances, but God is not absent from these circumstances. God is at work in and around you. And his goal in the midst of the suffering is to make you whole, is to make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And this harkens back to Proverbs chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, which in which Solomon says, I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. How many of you would just like to get through a week without stumbling? James tells us that just like Solomon told you in the Old Testament, I'm telling you in the New Testament, God wants to connect us with wisdom. God has planted in us Wisdom, And he wants us to walk in that wisdom. And that wisdom will lead you on the path of life. You want life? Do you want, uh, do you want to, to, to be steadfast and stand firm in the midst of trials and temptations? Then walk in wisdom. That's the entire message of the letter of James in a nutshell. And the reason James starts here is because, because of this truth. A person can endure... The who, the what, or the how if they have the why. Just think about that for a second. A person can endure the who, the what, or the how if they have the why. Let me give you an example of this. If any of you have read the book The Hiding Place with Corey Ten Boom, 
who is a Holocaust survivor, uh, incredible Christian woman, uh, incredible testimony. This is actually uh, her sister, Betsy. Betsy, and then here's Corey right here. And that's their, the sister on the farthest right is uh, one of their sisters named Nolly. Now, Corey was the only one of her family to survive the Nazi concentration camps in the middle of the last century. They were, they were taken and they were put in these concentration camps. Her and her, uh, Corey and her sister Betsy in the uh, overcrowded concentration camp called Ravensbrück. And this is a picture from one of the dormitories there, a women's dormitory there. And the, the barracks were terribly overcrowded. They were flea infested. But Betsy and Corey were miraculously able to smuggle a Bible into that concentration camp. And if you've read the story or you've heard her testimony, uh, you, you, you've heard this before. But they were able to, uh, able to, uh, to smuggle this Bible in there. And Betsy decided um, that as she was reading the Bible, that the Bible commanded them to give thanks. And that God can use anything for good. And so as Betsy's reading this Bible and she's getting bitten by fleas on her extremities... She looks at her sister, Corey, and, and all of us can imagine that, right? And that's a horrible, painful, awful situation, right? And Betsy looks at Corey and says, I think we need to thank God for the fleas. And Corey was like, no, I'm not thankful for these fleas. They're biting me. They're annoying me. I've got sores on my arms and my legs and my neck. Every, I, I, I don't. These fleas are not a gift from God, Betsy. You're going a little too far there, taking scripture maybe a little too uh, liberally. And so Betsy insisted, said, "Corey, I'm telling you, we, we need to thank God for these fleas." Not knowing why, but just being commanded by scripture. You know, there's there's going to be some things in scripture that you that you don't understand until you obey them. Right? We've heard that before. And so Corey says, "Okay," and they thank God for the fleas. And over the next several months, a wonderful but curious thing happened. They found that the guards, who were known as usually hostile, mean-spirited, and licentious people, would not enter their barracks. And this meant two things for these two ladies who had this Bible. It meant, first of all, that they were never assaulted, as the guards were prone to do. But it also meant that Corey and Betsy were able to hold open Bible studies and prayer meetings at the heart, in the heart of that Nazi concentration camp. Just think about that for a second. And because of that ministry, countless numbers of women came to faith in Christ even before they met their death in the midst of that camp. And only in the end did they figure out why the guards had left them alone and wouldn't enter their barracks. And you probably can guess why. Because of the fleas. You see... Count it pure joy is not a suggestion. And I want to ask you, what, is, what has come upon you may have surprised you, but do you really think that it has surprised God? I mean, I, I know that may, many of you are dealing with tough circumstances, but do you really think that it's a surprise to God? When God says count it pure joy, when James tells us that and begins that way, he's beginning that way because there are, there are fleas in your life. That you would love to get rid of. But that God has them there for a purpose. And so can you thank God for the fleas today? Can you count them pure joy? Can you trust that God is using even those fleas to make you whole 
incomplete, lacking in nothing. And you say, well, what is God trying to do? And that's where chapter 1 is, is just a summary of the rest of the book. And I'll, I'll give you a very brief, and of course, because uh, I'm a pastor, everything ends in Asian, okay, so that it'll be easily memorable. But chapter, chapter 1 of James is a summary. 1 verse 5 is an invitation to ask God for wisdom and for his provision. Cha I mean, I, I said chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 5. Verses 6 through 8 is about purification, that God is calling uh, you to purify yourselves of your doubt and your double-mindedness. Verses 9 through 11, it's about revelation. God is revealing what really matters in verses 9 through 11. It's not about material possessions, which, which fade and are fleeting. That's going to be a theme we see in the book. Verses 12 through 18, God is giving them wisdom and illumination to open their eyes to what makes them stumble, which is going to come up later in the book. Verses 19 through 25, God is calling them to flesh out their faith. Not just being hearers, but doers of the word. That's James's expectation on them and God's expectation even on us as we gather here this morning. That, that it's not just about coming and sitting through a service and listening, but it's about hearing and obeying. Verse 26, that, that if, you, if you really want to be a doer of the word, then take captive the words that you speak to be a doer of. For the glory of God, it's captivation. And then verse 27, doers of the word help the helpless and draw near to the boat, the broken. That's participation with ministry in God. And, and, and so James chapter 1 is a summary of all of the little mini-sermons that we're going to get through the rest of the book. And so we just want to mention those briefly about these little mini-sermons. And this is another one of those messages that I look forward to coming back and, and preaching another time. But here are James's messages. James's messages. First of all, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, he tells us about favoritism and love. And all of these, I'm just going to say a sentence about them and just say you. James is saying this is what real faith looks like. Remember that's what his concern is? Is that you know your faith is genuine. You can see yourself being made whole by the wisdom of God. If you've got these things in your life, real faith looks at each person with dignity and respect, regardless of how much they can benefit you. You see the people in in the, the churches that James is writing to, they saw these rich people who were coming into their churches and they were saying, hey, this person can benefit me. They can, uh, you know, maybe there's some, uh, uh, if, if I'm nice to them, then I'll, I can maybe get some reciprocity there. And, and, and if I'm nice to them, they'll be nice to me. And so they were, they were giving those rich people the seat of honor just because they were rich and they were telling the poor person to, hey, sit here at my feet. Basically giving them the humble place. And James says that's not real faith. Because that's not real love. Love doesn't treat people as objects. That's what sin does. Sin objectifies and dehumanizes people. But that's not real love. That's playing favorites. And that's, that's wrong. And then he gets into the infamous uh, chapter 2 verses 14 through 26. This idea of defining real faith. That real faith isn't just about saying the right things. Because ultimately talk is cheap. Right? Talk is cheap and doesn't prove anything. Real faith and real love and real transformation is not seen in just your words. What is it seen in? It's seen in your actions. Therefore, faith without works is dead. He's saying you can't say I'm a Christian and then not live it out. Your, your profession must match your lifestyle. If it doesn't, you don't have real faith. 
And he specifically uses the example that he'd mentioned in the previous passage where he says, he basically, just imagine this situation. If I pull up to the gas station this morning and there's a homeless person sitting, uh, sitting right there and I can tell they're hungry, they don't have anything except the clothes on their back. And, um, and I walk past them into the store and then as I walk out, maybe I feel a little, uh, you know, twinge of the Holy Spirit saying, hey, why don't, you, why don't you see if they're okay? Why don't you see if they need any help? And I look over and I, I just make eye contact and I say, have a great day. Oh my gosh, what a fool. That's, that's the example that James uses. You have the ability to help them have a better day, but you're just going to walk on by. Do you really think that's what love is? Love, love doesn't mind getting messy. Love moves near to people in their brokenness. This has been the message of the entire New Testament so far. This is what we've seen from Jesus, right? Love moves us towards the broken. And then while he does want us to understand that talk is cheap, in chapter 3, he says, but words are important. Chapter 3, verses 1 through, 1 through 12, real faith seeks to take captive the rebellious arsonist of our life known as our tongue. I can't wait to preach on that one. Because the tongue, it sets the trajectory of a person's life. And the wisdom of God wants to help you tame your tongue. And if you're being exposed to Scripture, then you will become more and more sensitive to how your words hurt people. And friends, if you're, if you're not aware of the power of words in your own life, then you're letting that little arsonist set fire to the relationships around you. That's what James is trying to tell you. You're being, in, instead, of, instead of you bridling your tongue, you're letting your tongue bridle you. And you don't recognize how dangerous and destructive that little member of your body is. And so words are important. Talk is cheap. Don't show favoritism. Next, he says, there's a beauty in the wisdom of God. Verses 13 through 18 of chapter 3. Real faith meditates upon the Word of God as the greatest purifying factor of life. When wisdom is cherished, life flows. You hear me? When wisdom is cherished, life overflows from you into the relationships around you. When wisdom is cherished, life flows into relationships, into workplaces, into schools, into communities, into families, into churches. And I fear that much of the American church today needs to heed this wisdom because we're not walking in wisdom, which is why we have division. It's why we have, why we have the, exalt, the exaltation of, prefer, of my preferences over your preferences. And, and it's just, there's tension, division, and all of these different kinds of things in churches and between Christians because we're not living by this wisdom. Because God's wisdom brings a wholeness to life that you can't find anywhere else. And so we need to embrace that beautiful wisdom. Then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, he talks about the source of conflict. These are little mini-sermons, remember? It, we don't, it, James is basically saying we don't want the wisdom of God all the time. We basically look at God when we come and hear a message that doesn't agree with us. We, we look at that, what we hear on a Sunday morning, and we see it as like, well, I've come to the spiritual buffet, and I, don't, I wouldn't really choose that to put on my plate, and so um, I don't really want that. But you realize what you're saying? You're saying, hey God, hands off. I mean, I know you created me and everything, 
but hands off. Don't touch that area of my life. I don't care that you've got wisdom and you want me to find wholeness and joy in that area of my life. I don't care that you want to overflow from that area of my life into the people around me. Don't touch it. And we just, like little children, put our hands over our ears and just, oh, I don't want to hear it. And that's where all of the conflict comes in our life. That's what James says in James chapter 4. Verses one through twelve, uh, verses thirteen through seven. I mean, one through twelve. I'm sorry. We want what we want, and everyone else should get on board. Real faith approaches life with humility, and that humility can be seen once again in your words. Verses thirteen through seventeen. James hits hard on words. The way of the world is pride and arrogance and self-centeredness. Many Christians are practical atheists, not seeking to take captive each moment for the glory of God, but making their own plans without recognizing the distinction between what is earthly and what's eternal. And then he gives us the reason for wealth. If you do have wealth, which many of us have wealth in this world, that you need to recognize that that wealth is not for you to serve that money, but it's you to use that money to invest in other people. Because that's what brings real richness to life. That's the wisdom of God applied to your money. You can't serve God in money. And so you need to make sure that you serve God with your money by investing in the lives of the people around you. In ministries, in churches, in Operation Christmas Child, in Lottie Moon, and all of these things that we that we do that yes, it's just nine dollars, but what if like what if God like just told you, hey, I want you to sponsor forty at nine dollars a pop? Would that be one of those areas where you say, God, I know you got that wisdom for me, and the Spirit just just kind of prompted me to do that, but don't touch my checkbook, God. Or don't touch my workplace, God. I'm not going to treat my employees like they're actual human beings. I'm going to treat them as a means to an end. Why don't you go live in a communist country for a little while and see if you like that. Right? That's not the way that life is supposed to be lived. It's one of the ways that, that the Bible has transformed culture as we know it. That, that, uh, that you don't, no longer in America have children working in factories. Right? You no longer have, have employees uh, treated like dirt. But instead, there's a value and a dignity placed on each individual life after they're out of the womb anyway, for most people. But when they're working for you, we have, we have whole government organizations to protect the worker, right? Why? It's all rooted in places like James chapter 5, where the rich were subjugating the poor around them. And James says, that's not right. You need to use your wealth to invest in people. And then, but if you are being subjugated, this would be God's word for the social justice warrior. In chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, have patience in the midst of your suffering. Don't always try to play the victim. Even when people are victimizing you, be patient and steadfast and trust that the Lord is at work. And instead, do the single most powerful resource that you have in your arsenal. Verses 13 through 20, 20 pray. Pray, 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 sing and pray, pray and pray, fast and pray, pray with other people, pray over people who are in sin. That's what, and this is this is one of those passages that that uh, that people get really uncomfortable with because it says, well, if if people anoint me with oil, then I should be healed of my physical ailments. If you read the context of the passage, it's not talking about physical ailments here. It's talking about people who are struggling with sin. Which confronts our southern Christian culture, doesn't it? We come into church and we kind of wear a mask. I'm fine. I'm not struggling in any way at all. And James chapter 5 says, yeah, you are. And you need the people around you to be praying for exactly how you're struggling. 
Because for many of you, if you're spiritually sick, if you're sin sick, then yeah, call the elders of the church, have them lay hands on you, anoint you with oil, and the prayer of faith, not the prayer that I pray in faith over somebody, but the prayer of faith that they would pray in response from hearing the truth and hearing my prayers for them will restore them. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Verse 16 says, and pray for one another that you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous person is great, has great power as is working. I think I had a lot of people praying for me who knew me in my youth ministry. And, and we celebrated uh, we celebrated people with incredible service, y'all. I, I, I introduced Andy uh, on Friday to this guy. His name is Jerry Miller. My aunt, who is almost 70, Jerry Miller was her youth worker when she was in the youth ministry at First Baptist Huntsville. He's been serving. He was, he was one of my youth workers. He was my 11th and 12th grade Sunday school teacher. He's been serving in the youth ministry there at First Baptist Huntsville for over 61 years. And it's still kicking. I mean, this guy is amazing. He's one of my heroes in life. I think Jerry Miller was praying for me. And Phyllis Holloway and Brenda Johnson and Ann Lee and all these other people. You have no idea who I'm talking about. But I think they were doing some James chapter 5 over Ryan Johnson, the spiritually sin-sick little boy who was running around the hallways of First Baptist Church causing all kinds of trouble. And many of you have prayed for, the, for our kids here. You prayed for, for the children in this church. And some of you are children in the church that were prayed for, and now you're back. You see, this is how James ends, and it ends so abruptly because this was, these are just, once again, little mini-sermons that, that he's given to us. But he ends with prayer because he wants you to get that prayer is not just your last resort, but it's a lifestyle choice. It is the single greatest discipleship choice that you can make is to be a person of prayer. If you want to walk with wisdom in your life, if you want wholeness for yourself and the people around you, become a person of prayer. That's what James would tell us. I think that's why I'm different. It's not because sanctification is just some kind of magical spiritual treatment where you get holiness injections each Sunday when you come to church. There's no secret room at First Baptist Church where we're, we're going to just have some holiness injected into us and that's how we become more like Jesus. No. But instead it's as you submit to the wisdom of God. There's a quote that, uh, that's been attributed to both Will Rogers and Mark Twain. You've probably heard it before. That good decisions come from experience. But where does experience come from? Bad decisions, right? Uh, some men in the church and I came up with a, a little bit different version of it. I'm thinking about biblical wisdom a few years ago. Is that wisdom is like scar tissue. You normally get it as a painful reminder of pursuing something else. I ask you this morning why you're here, that you're here. I ask you, do you recognize your brokenness? Remember Jesus himself said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy before God this morning? Do you recognize the fact that some of you are broken because of your own choices? Some of you are broken because of the choices of others. And some of you are broken just because this world is broken. And it's overflowed into your life. Do you know why James wrote the way he did? 
is to show us the beauty of God's wisdom as it fills in the cracks of our brokenness. And if you're running from God's wisdom this morning, you're saying, I'm not broken, I'm not broken, I'm not broken. Then in all likelihood, you're the only person who doesn't see the cracks. But if you recognize you are broken this morning, then James would tell you the wisdom of God is the key to your wholeness. There's little pictures of this that we get all throughout the world. And one of the most beautiful pictures of this is that, that I've seen is uh, from a Japanese art form. I'm going to try my best to say it. It's called Kintsukorai. It's also known as the Golden Repair. You can see this, but when a vase or a piece of pottery cracks in Japan, they don't just throw it out. They take it. And they look at it and they say, well, this is part of the history of the object. And they take a lacquer that's dusted and mixed with powdered gold or silver or platinum and they fill in that crack. And it is an art form over there called golden repair or golden joinery. And by using the precious metals to fill in the cracks, the process makes the broken object even more valuable than it was before it was broken. This is the purpose of wisdom. You see it? You're broken in here whether you realize it or not. And God is offering up his wisdom to you through his truth to say, you want to be whole again? First step, admit you're broken. Second step, realize you haven't got all the answers on your own. Third step, recognize that God does. And then come to him, not in a search for answers, because sometimes God doesn't give the answers that we like to hear. But instead, come broken, come to the truth, so that you can be filled up where you're cracked. And as you recognize that he's the only one that can do that, the only natural response is to become a worshiper. You see, I don't know if you guys have recognized it or not, but that's why we come together each Sunday. It's not because, like, our grandparents told us to. It's not because we need to pay the bills, even though we do as a church. It's not because we have this nice, beautiful building uh, that I've, I've told you this is not the church. This is the church, right? It's, it's not because of any of these reasons. The reason that we come together to worship is, is because we have a God who's invited us to worship Invited us to submit to the truth because he sees our brokenness and he says, I want to make you whole again. And so the question for us is, are we going to stop running? Are we going to stop trying to define uh, life for ourselves? Are we going to stop trying to define wisdom in a way that seems pleasing to us? Because remember, if you take the parts of the Bible that you like and take the parts of the Bible that you don't like, then you're not worshiping the God of the Bible, you're worshiping yourself. And I have a great fear that many Christians who come to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday are not worshiping the God of the Bible, the God of wisdom, the God of truth, the God of transformation. They're worshiping an idealized version of God that has no power at all because he's not really God. And there's only one way out of that. There's only one way out of that. It's to stop saying, I'm not broken. It's to stop saying, hey God, this area of my life is awful. And it's to start by saying that simple chorus that we sang right before, 
right before the choir sang. I'll say yes, Lord. I'll say yes. To your will, Lord, I'll say yes. Where you lead me, I will go. I'll say yes, Lord. I'll say yes. Did you know that you can't say no, Lord? If you say no, he's not your Lord. And so Philip's going to come, and Debbie's going to come. I'm going to pray, and we're going to stand, and we're going to sing that chorus. And I have no doubt that for some of you, you've seen a part of James that maybe you need to go, and you need to dive in a little deeper. Or maybe for some of you, you've said, you know, I need to, I need to stop hiding this area from God, or hiding this area from the, my friends, from the people around me. I need to go, and I, I, I need you to pray for me, because I'm broken in this area, and I know God's the only one that can make me whole. And, and, and James chapter 5 said, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, so that's why I'm here. For some of you, maybe you don't know where to start and you just need to ask the question. Ryan or, or whoever, help me. Help me help me surrender. Because that's the starting point. And so I'll be down here at the front in just a moment as we have our time of invitation. And if you want to be made whole again, then here's the prayer, but don't focus on just the prayer. Here's the person. And the person of Jesus. And that's where it all begins. And so if you want to be made whole again,